about 10 years I've been carrying this flame with me now, Neil. Yeah. And I've been going around, I've interviewed um, uh, Joe McGrath um, in a dodgy pub in London somewhere. Uh, you know Trevor Peacock? Yes, uh, yeah, well, not well. Well, but he, he basically invent, invented, like, pop TV yes. in the 60s. Yeah. And he lives out in Yeovil, so I went and visited him. And it's just, I've been gathering all this stuff for so long. But then other books have come along. I did The Fruit, Douglas Adams, and uh, obviously Stephen and Hugh now and everything. But this is the book, Fab right. Fools, right. is what I've been wanting to do for eggs. And the Fab thing is... Fab Fools, folks. Fab Fools, indeed. Week's one name is Fab. I'm Ed Chen. I'm John Stone. Joining us this week, a man we've been trying to have on for what two years now, Jim? Oh, gosh, knows. I have no idea, Ed, but it's wonderful to be here with you and John <laughs> virtually at last. We first contacted you back when the uh, Fab right. Fools right. printed version finally eked its way out of candy jar books. Well, sort of did. Yes. The book in question is Fab Fools. The Beatles, The Ruddles, and Rock and Roll Comedy. Uh, our guest is Jem Roberts, the author, and he is also mostly the narrator of the audiobook, which is actually probably much more available than the printed book. Well, I'm glad to know that it is over there in America, because uh, uh, as I was explaining to you before, uh, one of the key reasons that this book existed was the idea of trying to bridge the gap a little more between American culture and British culture and what it means for the Beatles story. Yeah, I mean, the principles themselves, the band and their music, and even their humor seems to have crossed the divide reasonably well, but the mm. things around them don't necessarily go from one country to the other in any complete manner. Well, this is the thing. It just sort of kind of struck me from two double acts, really. There are a lot of double acts in the book. But I was just thinking of people all around the world listening to the Beatles anthology and listening to Moonlight Bay and the sketch with Morecambe and Wise and just thinking, what on earth is 90% of the audience for this CD? What are they making of this? Because in Britain... Eric and Ernie, Eric Morecambe and Ernie Wise are like two, they're more than what Martin and Lewis were because they loved each other and they were together for years. They're sort of absolute cultural icons, even sort of decades after they both died. So the context for so much of the audience, so many Beatles fans all around the world, was utterly lost. And then at the same time, you see, 
all of the stories that, as a Beatlemaniac, I've heard over the years about the Smothers Brothers, about John and the Kotex pad and all that, as well as George actually being on the Smothers Brothers show. We have no idea in this country who the Smothers Brothers are. There was just no crossover whatsoever. They just kind of remained in the US and it just sort of, we don't know who they are. So just between the American fans and the British fans, I just thought, well, everywhere the comedy and the Beatles sort of meet, there's all these kind of opportunities for just kind of furthering genuine grey areas in Beatles knowledge. And that is a very rare thing in this day and age, as far as I'm concerned, grey areas in Beatleology. It's all very vibrantly coloured everywhere by many, many Beatles books, authors. Python is one of the few things that both countries understand uh, equally well, I believe. In different ways, though, even then, because even then the context of Monty Python is sort of 70% gone for so many American fans because it's lost on most of us, really, because it's now over 50 years since they recorded those shows. And if you watch show it to a young person these days in Britain, and they wouldn't really know half of the jokes that are going on. So this is why there is such a thing as a comedy historian, which is what I attempt to be, because comedy is high art and these things have to be remembered and contextualised. This is why Shakespeare isn't very funny anymore, because we don't know what the jokes were about. So it's important to know what the jokes are about, and that's true of Monty Python, same as it is of The Beatles as a comedy act. And we should mention that once you finish Fab Fools, you have written several books on Python. Well, tangentially, really. My very first book over 14 years ago, uh, no, just about 14 years ago, was about a show called I'm Sorry I'll Read That Again, a radio comedy show. And that's where John Cleese started out and uh, Graham Chapman was sort of connected to that. And that whole Cambridge gang, they all started out in that show. Um, so that was sort of the roots of Python that uh, people don't know. The book's called The Clue Bible, but uh, it didn't really go out in America because it that was really a far too British a cult, I think, the uh, I'm Sorry shows on radio. Yeah, I think it's also interesting to note that just the radio culture between the two countries was completely different. I mean, you're mentioning these shows that people regularly listen to in Britain, and it didn't exist here. Well, it's not just that. The uh, show that John Cleese started out in was, if you wanted to get the closest to a comedy outfit to the Beatles at the same time as the Beatles in the 1960s, it was them. It was on the uh, the home service, but it was young, and it was a lot of young people screaming in the crowd because the jokes were so bad. It was just sort of really wild, wacky, kind of Python in audio form, and these huge sort of screaming like rock crowds that they used to have. They were absolute scenes that they were having at the same time as the Beatles were recording their albums. If you want to hear kind of the Beatlemania of British comedy in the 1960s. There's loads on YouTube. Look up ISIRTA. Uh, have you all had a good meditation? Oh, oh lovely, smashing. Yes, smashing. Yes, uh, excuse me, but, but why are you all talking like that? Well, they all talk like that, though. We learned Yes, it. it's Indian, you know. Well, tell us, why did you take up meditation? Well, we'd reached the stage where our preternatural urges were being sublimated by an overindulgent materialistic ego and in a new spiritual sense in a preoccupied cosmic being. Ah, right. oh, um, in other words... We were bored. <laughs> and what happened when you landed in New Delhi? We went to the house of the great Maharishi Yogi. And did he take you in? Oh, yes, completely. As George Harrison often said, Python started where the Beatles ended. He always believed 
some spirit passed over from the Beatles into Python. I guess Mike McGear would have been the uh, the medium in that case, taking the spirit out of one body and moving it into the other. Uh, yes, well, indeed. Well, but then again, there are so you know when you've got the bonzos there. There are so many uh, jump-off points from one to the other, isn't it? The, the virus, whatever it was, between them all. It was just a bad attempt at a joke, so we'll try and leave that in, as Ringo might say. <laughs> I'm feeling a bit Ringo-ish today. You'll have to forgive me. <laughs> yeah, also, you know, uh, the way things are delivered to an audience, Python was, uh, I guess, the first broadcasts were in 1969. But Python didn't really come here until PBS started broadcasting their shows, and that was in the mid-70s. It's a bit like World War II, isn't it? (laughs) Since we're into Python, let's start with Neil Ennis. I mean, Neil was Mm. a big backer of this book. He was a friend of yours. Uh, He uh, was actually a big part of the creation of this work. Well, that was the dream, but uh, then the dream turned into a nightmare, didn't it? When I say I was friends with Neil Innes, we spent plenty of time behind stage talking. He was a friend of the Bath Comedy Festival. I live here in Bath in the UK, and he used to do things for the festival. He just he was the nicest guy you would ever wish to meet. He used to do so many different shows and all kinds of things. But the point is, he was one of those guys who had millions of friends. So when I claim to be a friend, that's just how friendly he was. Sadly, it's not that I was sort of um, intimate uh, friend of his, but having spoken to him many times over the years behind stages and doing different things, I've mentioned this idea that I've been carrying around for so long about celebrating the Beatles as comedians. And he was 100% up for it. And uh, we were sort of talking about it for a long time. And I got some interviews and some stuff up on YouTube and everything. But ultimately, the big interview where we would have learned so much more about the Ruttles and everything just didn't come together, was literally about to come together any day when the sad news came that we lost him. So sadly, the book was always going to be a celebration of Neil. And it came out in tribute instead, which uh, tends to happen when you write about septuagenarian comedians. Yeah, indeed. But it seems to me that despite his love for both the Beatles and the Ruddles, at times he might have gotten a little bit sick of it. Do you get that same impression? I mean, imitation song is almost a Lennon-esque sort of, hey, get off of my back about this thing. Mm. Well, I mean, he had a long and varied career. This is the thing. Neil could shirk one thing off and come back to it later. But when did he make peace with it? Maybe around the same time as he wrote Imitation Song, and he kind of could put his great, multifarious career, you know, into some kind of context. And I think you kind of hear that in that song. But for 10 years, when I was a kid, Neil Innes was on children's TV. He played a wizard in a kid's show with a dragon and lots of storytelling. And Now, let me see. The tune for the magic spell goes... Um, uh, oh. No, it doesn't. It goes... Boom, 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 boom. Uh, yes, of course, uh, Cauldron. I was just testing you. <clears throat> boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. Right, all together... Pom 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 pom. Now the magic clap. Mm-hmm. And now the magic 
rhyme. Puddle, muddle, muddle, puddle, wishes granted, however many. Muddle, puddle, puddle, muddle, make for us a magic penny. So just to put it in context, what period of time was that? Well, I was a child, so in the 80s. It was called Puddle Lane. I think there's one episode up on YouTube. Watch it. It is magical. He did loads of other things. Terry Jones wrote fairy tales and Neil Innes sort of brought them to life. And he did lots and lots of children's programs when his kids were the same age as me. You know, his kids were little. So he was working in children's TV for a decade or two. So this was after the Bonzos. I guess he must have started in the late 70s. And then when the Ruttles archaeology came along, that kind of stopped that whole side of life for him. And he kind of rediscovered his music, really, thanks to the Ruttles archaeology. So we've got a lot to thank that project for. He's had so many different careers, the Bonzos, the Ruttles, Monty Python, all these different things just going on with one man. And I think once he'd made peace with being a Ruttle, then he was happier than he'd ever been. Because if you could see him, either of you guys ever actually see him live? I saw him at Beetlefest once. Yes, I was hoping uh, one of you would have uh, had a look. I mean, he was just so brilliant live. Yeah, no, exactly. And because he loved it. And I saw him do the same kind of songs again and again. But he had all this stuff to pick from. He could do a bit of a Monty Python song, or he could do some rattled numbers, or he had all the Bonzo songs, and then he had his whole solo career to reach from as well. So every single show he was doing, there was an embarrassment of riches to put in there. And he knew that the Ruttles were always going to be sort of the jewel in that. And, I mean, he's the guy who kept the Ruttles flame burning throughout the 90s and the noughties, and now it's left to the fans, really, to uh, keep the Ruttles flame burning. Oh, you don't think Eric's going to give us Ruttles <laughs> 3? Yeah, your mother should go, maybe. <laughs> or maybe your grandfather should go, I don't know. Although, as you mentioned, Ruttles 2 never actually even made it out over there. I think you can be happy about that well i mean obviously i put myself through it i mean long before i even wrote this book i'd uh, you know sourced that dvd and sat through it slightly puzzle faced there are a handful of good ideas in there but you know eric and Greg, you know is always worth a bit and, and robin williams and all that kind of stuff that's great you can also see i don't know if you've ever been sad enough to go on youtube there are fans out there who are putting together entire lost Ruttles albums, like you can listen to Shabby Road. Yeah, um, no, I, I've seen that. It's, it's both pathetic and really actually very funny. That's the kind of thing that I could imagine Eric doing, you know, sort of taking fresh wound from the Bonzos and sort of using that as, a, you know, part of the soundtrack for the Ruttles 3, if he ever did it. It's a shame that there wasn't more music in the Ruttles 2 because, well, this is the thing. You get into this area of what should have been. It just sort of went over old ground. Eric doesn't kind of get the idea, I don't think, of expanded universes. He was always quite um, uh, sneery about Neil touring as the Ruttles and doing Ruttles numbers because he, he didn't seem to get that to the fans, the Ruttles were real. To him, it was a comedy thing that he did in the 70s and he's proud of it. And he'd moved on and done, you know, all sorts of other things. He doesn't really understand that once fans 
anyone who loves the Beatles should know this. Once fans have got hold of something and it's in their heart and it's in their minds, then they're going to be running the show pretty much. We know what canon and non-canon mean. Have a lot of fun with it because that's certainly what Neil would have wanted, just us to have fun with it. And Neil wrote the music. I mean, that it, it wasn't part of Eric's, you know, purvey. To, so he doesn't have any emotional connection to it. It's all quite sad. I mean, this is why it is interesting to see the context of it all. That Eric got sick just when they were going to start doing the music. And he couldn't perform. There was no way he could have been part of the band. And maybe that just kind of always stuck in his craw a little because he maybe he would have liked to, but Neil was just, he got the job done, you know? Although Dirk's b- fake bass playing, everyone knows it's like, what the hell are you doing, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> He's actually mimicking other bass players from the sixties <laughs> <laughs> with his wrong hand. I wasn't too convinced about doing another Ruttle thing, oh, okay. but a lot of Beatle fans uh, were. Mm. And in fact, I went to see George Harrison and I said, well, oh. what do you think, George? And he said, well, you know, more Ruttles immediately. He's got this dark sense of humor. He said, which one of you is going to be shot? Ooh. So I said, precisely, George, you know, where's the fun in all this? You know, oh, and he wow. said, no, you should do it. Because, uh, you know, it's all part of the soup. And anyway, I, I, I got a couple of songs and I, I, I'm playing them to him. And about the third or fourth one, you know, he's mm. going, hang on. Because he was trying to think, well, what Beatles song is this supposed oh. to be? And, and none of them were, you know. And right. he said, hang on, these are your songs. You know, don't be shy, you know. <laughs> and so uh, it was the song um, Questionnaire oh. that made me think, okay, I'll come at a whole different angle here. Right and do the Ruttles in a sort of more musical way, make the album more as, you know, as a, you know right. an homage. Right. That is easily one of my favorite albums that the Beatles never made. It's just, it's almost perfection. When I was growing up in the 80s, the Beatles were not very uh, apparent anywhere. So I kind of feel that I discovered the Beatles in the 90s, thanks to the anthology. It was just like, oh my God, where's this band been all my life? And so very soon afterwards, because I was already a comedy obsessive, the Ruttles thing came along so soon afterwards, kind of the Beatles and the Ruttles almost coexisted from the start, certainly in in my fandom. But even then, when the Archaeology album came out, there was just that slight disappointment that they hadn't really kind of gone the whole hog with the Archaeology piss take and everything. And in writing this book and telling this story, you kind of learn why that was. Sorry, sorry guys, to keep dragging this back to sort of, you know, bitter feuding between uh, you know, <laughs> Eric and Neil, yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, I love archaeology, but what is really tragic, I mean, it needs to be re-released. It was, and the greatest thing about that is that fake Star Club thing at the very end of that uh, mm. album. I got you under my skin, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now we'd like to slow the tempo down a little and do a classic song, one I'm sure you're all familiar with, and we'd like to dedicate it to all the food you've eaten so far.
Thank you, you're wonderful. Do feel free to talk amongst yourselves. It's like, you know, we're so used to the real Star Club, and it's like, well, how can you do something that, oh, this is ridiculously funny. <laughs> you can try and picture it, certainly. That's sort of one of my specialities, really. It's the, the, the joke. It's where something in comedy is one big joke. So the radio shows I used to write about the sort of, it, it was all sort of, is all in the mind, to coin a phrase, where you just sort of have to believe that this game that they're playing really, really matters against life or death. And you just have to keep it in your mind that the Rattles are the greatest band in the history of the world. And that's a game that we all play. And I love the sort of the double comedy of, of having one big joke and then loads of great jokes on the journey. Clearly, he understood their writing so well that he could incorporate all these references that make the music even more thrilling. As you say about uh, imitation song as well, um, he was also writing from the heart. This is the other reason why the Ruttles music is so fantastic. Because when he had this job, he was like, you've got a month to recreate all the best of the Beatles' oeuvre. Uh, he actually, it all came from his own memories of being a teenager when the Beatles were on the radio. That's what he always claimed. He wasn't listening. He didn't listen to a single Beatles song in writing all those songs. He literally just sort of went away with a guitar and a piano and he wrote his own Beatle music from his own experiences. And the Ruttles songs are full of a lot of personal stuff to Neil, but just kind of rendered in this beautifully Beatley way. And his use of words... In that song in particular, there's one phrase he used where I just thought that's brilliant, which is uh, a poppy cockeyed world. He loved a good pun, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I think eventually both he and George Harrison came to have the same mind about the relationship or rather the symmetry between the Beatles and the Ruddles and, and how you can easily just sort of jump back and forth between these two universes. That's the beauty of Ruttling. Every spoof is a Ruttle. It's like Walk Hard is the Ruttle of Johnny Cash. You know, there's an expanded Ruttle universe where it's all happening. As you say, that's the way George preferred to see his own life through a kind of a, a Ruttle screen. Yeah, the only problem with Walk Hard, Jack Black is Paul McCartney. Well, the, <laughs> yeah. When, when they went out with the casting, it was like, we want you to be able to do all four voices. Let's be honest, it shows. Although none of them do any of them as well as you do. Well, you know, it's, it's still a lot better than uh, Robert Zemeckis' Yellow Submarine remake would have been. So. Well, he was actually going to get real voice talent for that, but it also would have had to have not only been doing the real Beatles, but doing the original animated film as well, somewhere in between. To, to evoke the spirit of both of them. If ever a work of art doesn't need to just be remade from scratch, it's Yellow Submarine. It's really frustrating. There's so much that didn't make it into the film Yellow Submarine, which would have been great fun. There's a whole character, lovely Rita, the meter maid, who would have been love interest for Fred and everything. So there's this whole kind of almost expanded Yellow Submarine universe, which I, for one, would be over the moon to see explored in a sequel call it octopus's garden or whatever you like you know there's a lot of great songs that would work in that kind of context well in the 80s they had actually tried to do that with like a film called strawberry fields 
Uh, did they? What was this? Oh, I don't know. About that. There was a script and there was some pre-production, but it never got any further than that. Oh, gosh. I didn't know that. I, that would be in the book otherwise. Oh, I have to look that up. If somebody could have, you know, talked Zemeckis into doing something like that, then especially with Peter Serafinowicz's uh, Paul McCartney, that would have been a, a treat. But I just don't want to see that story retold in IMAX 3D or whatever. Just do something for the 2020s with, you know, those four great characters or five or six, include Jeremy in there and everything. Why not? You could always bring Paul McCartney's grand dude <laughs> different submarines because that was always the idea of all these different colored submarines so you could kind of mix that whole thing up and make a really beautiful animated musical with all sorts of fantastic cg effects that you couldn't have done 60 years ago and yellow submarine will remain a fantastic work of art but yeah just don't talk to me about reboots gentle children's comedy but paul has done well with those two books i think I must admit, I've only actually read them in the shop. Uh, okay. Well, you can read them in about four minutes. So Exactly. So I have read them, but uh, I don't have them uh, on my shelves. Why not? Why not? If anyone's going to spread a bit of uh, scouse twinkle in the world, then it should be Paul, shouldn't it? Get the audiobooks because Paul does narrate them. Oh, no, yeah. That's something I, sh- I should uh, get onto as well. So, okay, you know, we were talking about anthology. The big thing we've all been talking about recently, Get Back. Yeah. Get Back really demonstrates how funny, as individuals, the four of them were. Well, this is the thing. I, there's a website, which you probably are aware of, which for years now have been transcribing the whole of everything recorded on Get Back, all the dialogue, which I found very uh, useful when I was writing the book. And just combing through these pages and pages and pages of sort of Mike 3, Camera 4 script, just reading jokes, really, mainly John, let's be honest, John's jokes and, and Paul's jokes. And and there's the bit that I kind of put in the book, which was just after George has left and John's doing a, a kind of spoof radio show with Ringo and Paul. And it's it's actually funnier than a lot of the stuff they did for the Christmas flexes, to be honest. I was surprised that there wasn't more of that in Peter Jackson's episodes. Maybe they'll be in the expanded versions if they happen, but uh, there's actually so much more great comic material which is not in the Disney Get Back. Well, it's important to get in the line. Is it necessary to do that now, Mr. Lennon? (laughs) (laughs) Had that also come out while I was still writing the book, then Ringo farting would probably have gotten mentioned in there somewhere. You know, it's still a very authoritative book without Ringo farting. Everyone will know that once they see the film. They're not going to forget, well, Ringo or George Martin's response to it. (laughs) But that's it. There's lots of great laughs in there. And it's been quite widely accepted for many years now, I think, that it was never the doom and gloom that the Beatles reckoned throughout the 70s and, and into the 80s and everything. So when I was literally writing this book, and I've, I've researched it for 10 years or more before I actually wrote it, if I, if I haven't been researching it since I was a teenager, you know. But uh, in writing this book, I didn't have access to get back. But it was clear that they just never stopped joking with each other. The second that they finished a take, they were back into comedy mode. Right. But to be able to see it as opposed to just hear it, I mean, we've heard it on the Nagras, but you see it. One of the things that we've said amongst ourselves on this show uh, is that, you know, John's wit was quicker than 
even we had guessed, we, you know, we knew he was funny and we knew he was capable of coming up with a quip just off the top of his heads, but he is just brilliantly lightning fast. It's almost Robin Williams like. Yeah. The Dick James line is one of my favorite ones. <laughs> Dick James. That's, yeah, for sure. And as far as I can say, there's only two ways. We're going to do it or we're not going to do it. And I want a decision. Maybe we should have a divorce. Well, I said that at the last meeting. But it's getting nearer, you know. Who would have the children? Dick James. Oh, yeah. We all need you. And, you know, if, if you all can't get it together, that's really very sad. But, you know, we got a glimpse of that in the bits from the Think for Yourself sessions. Because Lennon's pretty fast there, too. And you've got time to rectify all the magic And you've got time to rectify all the things that you should. That was that it. You should, you should have got me there, boy. I was moving. Until I'd know him to get back in here, you know? He's kind of grooving out of the place, you know? Is he? I can bet that it's just a drawing. Okay. Oh, I've got it now. Listen to this. I'm going to give expression as well. But this is just a treasure trove of the movie. If we were to be able to put together, you know, all the other gags that didn't make it into that and all the gags that uh, we've never heard probably in between takes, then you could, they could put out an entire Beatles joke book on their own. They could. Uh, I have no doubt. And Apple, anyone from Apple's listening, I'm, I'd be very happy. Do chip in and take your percentage off the top. Transcribing Lennon and McCartney wit off the cuff forever. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Which then brings us back around. I mean, you know, Mike McGear does show up, and he's so happy that his sight gag finally shows up. He's always said that, oh, yeah, I was playing the piano with the lid closed over the keys, and no one ever believed him, and now it's there. See, it's it's funny. It's, it's another cultural thing that, again, is kind of lost on both young people and non-British people. That Before I was born, the, the scaffold... They were kind of seen, uh, how can I put this? They were kind of seen as a very kind of light entertainment, sort of cheesy band, really. Their pop songs were really quite, um, you know, your nan would dance to them kind of thing. And it's only sort of now looking back that people are beginning to reassess both the Scaffold and Mike McGear and his, his stuff. And it's it's really surprising stuff decades on. Although the Beatle people have always recognized the McGear album. I mean, it's the Lost Wings album. And as I, I sort of uh, dare to uh, wonder in the book, maybe it's sort of almost a sequel to the Magical Mystery Tour as well, with Paul playing the same sergeant major in the army. And the album before that. The one with their mother on the cover. Ah, yes. I think Neil and this might have had something to do with it, or whatever. But all these beautiful people came from the South, 
came and put some of them up in our house and then we'd go to Strawberry Studios every day and I'd have all these songs that I was had worked on uh, and we they would slowly come out in the studio very different to what I'd ever done before Woman was a, a very different album uh, but it's something I wanted to do uh, and as I say at the end people like Mooney loved it all the interviews that Mike did during the press for the re-release, you know, it's just so great. Mm. And the album before that, was it McGough Begear? Roger McGough, who I did actually uh, get to interview for the book. I didn't actually get to interview Mike, sadly, but Roger was uh, very helpful. Roger McGough is a Liverpool poet. He's the author of many books set in and around Liverpool, including Mersey Sound, Gig, the Liverpool scene, and two of his Liverpool poems are in the Oxford book of 20th century English verse. He was born in Liverpool, attended school in Liverpool, was even married in Liverpool, and his football team is, of course, Everton. He's a member of the Scaffold, a light comedy group who played the Cavern during the early 60s. And during those incredible years, he lived, wrote, loved, watched football, and drank in Liverpool. Roger, did you know the Ruttles? Oh, yes, yes. Roger McGough, Liverpool poet, writer, author, humorist, bon viveur, and a man who knew the Ruttles. Well, he was in the Ruttles and probably wrote most of the best jokes in Yellow Submarine, but uh, he wouldn't dare to actually put his name on any of them, even though I sort of, I spent a long time doing Yellow Submarine jokes to Roger McGough, hoping he'd say, oh, no, that one's mine. But he just basically said it was decades ago. This is the problem when you do my job, really. it's it, The answer you hear more than any other was, this was 50 or 60 years ago, mate. I have no idea. Yeah. And I just recently came across a quote from McCartney, who in his memory put the Paris trip after the uh, American trip. I was like, well, that's not it. <laughs> you got to take some memories with a pinch of salt, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, with Paul, not only do you have his memory, you have the drugs, you have the <laughs> fact that uh, he likes to intentionally distort history. It's a kind of a mania, the, the way some stories kind of take off and, and take hold, because, again, I mean, I'm one of the people, as a, as a sort of historian, I, I'm all for print the legend make it clear that it is a legend. It's a bit like when I talk about um, Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, Beatles connections in the book, and the whole story about how it, the only reason that the Beatles never made Lord of the Rings is because J.R.R. Tolkien lived down the road from a rock band who were rehearsing all the time. So he hated rock and roll music and would not allow the Beatles to ever be hobbits. But I, I spoke to Mark Lewisone about that, and he said, yeah, I've heard that, but it's it's just totally fantasy but it's interesting as long as you've made it clear that it is a legend i'm all for printing the legend but the thing is when you're interviewing people and you're a fan so you do know better very often and you know they're going into a story that you know was completely uh, disproved 20 30 years ago i mean that's one of my, the key skills of what i do hopefully is to see these anecdotes starting and to cut them off and swing them around onto saying something that's both true and interesting and you haven't heard it before but when you're a beetle it's a lot harder to tell people things that they haven't heard before i suppose yeah in the 90s alan cozen of the new york times had actually assembled a list and it's like oh paul's doing number 74 yeah well i hate to say it and i hate to be churlish because i saw him at the uh 
Royal Festival Hall at the end of last year, launching his new lyrics book. And that in itself was, well, I'd seen him perform music before, but to just see him sitting chatting just like 20 feet in front of you was something that I never thought I'd have the uh, pleasure of doing. So I don't want to be churlish, but oh my God, reading the lyrics book is exactly that. It's like, oh, number 74, number 17, number 13, with a little spin on anecdote 25.3. You know, but there's just enough new material, and then of course the pictures and the uh, associated lyric sheets and all that makes the volume just priceless. It's just a shame that the text wasn't kind of steered more to fresh stuff rather than sort of repeated anecdotes that we can all just mouth the words as we're reading the book. You know, it's odd, don't you think that someone around him would go? You know, you've told the getting better story forty times. Yeah, especially when it's printed on on glossy paper, you know, it's there for for definite. And it's just, I don't want to hear that again. Sit in a room, pick a couple of song titles, and see if you can remember what it's from. I find it surprising that they didn't include like an extra 200 lyrics because he's written so many hundreds of them. It would be nice to have had a sort of digest of just solid lyrics, nothing else, no gloss, just to have this kind of treasure trove of verse to flick through for decades to come but again that's just just being churlish and you you know you can always be wise after the fact but uh, and some of that we got in the blackbird singing book uh yeah 20 years ago now that brings us to another topic which is while not directly comedy is certainly comedy adjacent the infamous evening uh hmm. that john and paul were together that they might or might not have gone down to Saturday Night Live. Yeah. So Lauren Michaels made this $3,000 offer, and John had always said that it was that night that they were together at the Dakota. Paul has sometimes said that, but recently, and to be fair, in the past, he's also said, oh, it wasn't that week, it was the week later. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I suppose the only question that arises from that really is – did John Lennon make it up? Did, was he lying when he said they were there together? And, and why would he do that, really? It's a very strange lie to tell. Well, they both admit that they had spent a Saturday night together, mm. but which Saturday night? Was it the Saturday night when Raquel Welch was hosting the show and Lauren Michaels made that offer? Or was it the next week? It almost couldn't have been the next week. Paul keeps saying it was the next week. He said that like three times in recent press because, well, A, Saturday Night Live wasn't on the air the next week, so there wouldn't have been anything for them to be watching to spawn this thought of let's go down to the studio. And B, on the Sunday, he was in Texas and his tour started. There's a lot of contradictions in terms about this because the really interesting thing about this question is that what we're really arguing about is whether something that did not happen happened because they didn't do anything. It's the biggest non-story. We can all just dream of what may have happened in a better universe when they did answer the call and did get in that cab. But the whole story revolves about a non-event, and that is actually the most interesting thing about it, I think. Otherwise, I'd say Paul gets confused occasionally. (laughs) Yeah, although he did like the Two of Us movie, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg coming back and getting his revenge on John and Paul. I haven't rewatched that since uh, Get Back, so uh, that would be interesting in itself to give that another go. 
it's fiction. It's very clearly fiction. And, uh, well, Jared Harris playing John Lennon. <laughs> uh, you're a little bit too short there, mate. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I, I must admit, I didn't really uh, know who the actors were the first time I saw it, so it was uh, even stranger. It's, it's been weird of seeing him in things subsequently, like Mad Men, and just going, oh, yeah, that's the guy that was John Lennon. And he's such a completely different character in Mad Men. Uh, well, very. They're much posher. More like the kind of the uh, the Beatles cartoon John Lennon than actual John Lennon. But, I mean, you know, that whole idea really just launched so many different things. That launched the American reveal of the Ruddles. Well, exactly. And this is another thing. It's like what I was saying about Morecambe and Wise and the Smothers Brothers, that Saturday Night Live, the biggest comedy show in the history of uh, American TV, it's just never been shown over here. We'd, we, you know, so we'd get films like Wayne's World and all these spin-offs and, and love them. They'd be big hits, but we had no context for them because there was no Saturday Night Live, and the odds of getting to see any, certainly back in the day in the UK, were just non-existent. Really, there's a great book on Saturday Night Live. Uh, live, yeah, live from New York. Oral history. Yes, live from New York. That is a fantastic comedy history book and i read that cover to cover having barely ever only seen clips there was no youtube when that book came out and even now you know you can see what there is on youtube but uh, there's still some beatles stuff from saturday night live that i haven't been able to track down like i've never seen alan cumming playing paul mccartney in what is it fried chicken forever or something yeah I, i think you can that that's one you can safely skip well only as an obsessive, I can. I'll, I'll see it one day. I've never seen... I mean, it blows my mind, the idea of how the hell Bill Murray played Paul McCartney, because I've never seen that sketch either. Well, he, well, he doesn't say anything. Oh, does he not? No. Oh, it's what, he just bats his eyelashes and stuff. Yeah, exactly. It, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the whole idea of that was just largely a play on the uh, Middle East peace talks. Hmm. So Henry Kissinger is bringing John and Paul together, and and they have this list of things that they will uh, yeah. agree upon in order to reunite the Beatles. Yoko shall not sing, play, sit, or do anything during this session. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. So again, that's just something where I I try to sort of um, for for British readers of the book tried to sort of give them a bit more context. So with SNL, George showed up the next year, at least partially in response to the offer. This is him entering the Ruttle universe, really, isn't it? (laughs) It's true. It's true. It's true. Uh, Tell me, Shotzi, is it uh, true what they say about the way you people are gifted? Oh, it's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. George's videos, a lot of them are just so Python-inspired. Now, there's all that controversy on the internet about the recent My Sweet Lord video. What did you think of that? Again, this is exactly what I'm talking about. It was a very American music video. It was full of American stars, and a lot of British Beatles fans were nonplussed when it went up because... We didn't know who who these people were. Right. What it kind of felt like was kind of like a a charity comedy sketch for Comic Relief or or something like that, getting a lot of celebrities in to do this thing. But normally, you know, when you don't know who the celebrities are, on its own, it doesn't really make much sense. 
that's kind of how I felt when I heard, uh, do they know it's Christmas? I didn't know who half these people were. <laughs> yeah. Certainly wasn't funny anyway. I've kept quiet. I've heard what people have had to say, but you all know that the only person around this table who can go is me. I was in the biggest rock and roll band in the history of music. That's a bit disrespectful. In front of JLS. Smithers. I've had a longer career than all of you put together. My music has touched millions of people around the world, and I am the last remaining Beatle. What about me? I'm one of the last remaining Beatles. My God. Anybody disagree? Well, that's decided. Nice one, Samaka. You're doing this year's appeal film in Africa. How did it go? Samaka's doing the appeal film. Gordon Brown's rapping with JLS. Justin Bieber was on the keys. I think that's a good day's work. Not as good as this. Well, for that matter, when we finally got the McCartney-James Corden appearance, the skit itself was funny, but we had no context of it. No. The original one. Uh, oh, the yes, the comic relief. Well, that that's the British comic relief, indeed. Yeah, the, that was the British comic relief. It's like, why would you know, you know, who Roger Lloyd Pack is, or or things like that? Sad, you know, we're all aware of J- who James Corden is now, at least. I'm also a Doctor Who fan, so I had to know that through through that as well. Again, which also pops up in Fab Falls. This is, you know, one of the beauties of the Beatles. They just intersect with every corner of culture. Somebody could be sad enough to do a whole book on the Beatles and Doctor Who. Well, John Pertwee keeps popping up in the Beatles story. He was in the Navy with George Martin, and he showed up on a couple of television appearances with them in the 70s, and there were Beatle mentions in Wurzel Gummidge. Oh, right. Well, I wasn't aware of the Beatle mentions in Wurzel Gummidge, but uh, I, I was very uh, warped by that as a tiny child, so I've never, <laughs> I've never re- rewatched it as an adult. Although they've rebooted that, haven't they? Isn't there a new version of that out there nowadays? Seen the new, sorry, this is this is too tangential for a, a Beatles podcast, but if you haven't seen the new version, it is absolutely the, one of the most magical piece of television you'll ever see. It's uh, very, very recommended. Okay, fair enough. Well, if the new Yellow Submarine had been like that, it would have been worth seeking out. Well, exactly. That just proves that reboots can be done in a very tasteful and successful way. There's still time for Robert Zemeckis to make that decision. I mean, this is the scary thing about Get Back being such a big hit now. It's like with Disney, that green light faded away and that's going to be right back on the table. So, you know, we need to start protesting in the streets to make sure <laughs> sequel, not remake, sequel, not remake. Being Hollywood, they'll do Yellow Submarine as a live action. Mm. <laughs> kind of the way it seemed to be heading, really, but CG live action, I don't know. Tom Cruise is the boob. The Beatles rock band. The visual representations of the Beatles in the game, while cartoon-like, are realistic in their dress, mannerisms, and movements. Designers studied photos, videos, even Beatles tribute bands, and watched the Beatles anthology for weeks on end to properly represent the Fab Four. And since each song is performed in a well-known venue associated with the Beatles, these settings were also thoroughly researched. The Ed Sullivan Theater was recreated, for example, from several photos. 60s fashion trends were studied to verify that audience members were properly dressed as well. The rock band animation's beautiful. 
something like that would be fantastic. It's a game that nobody plays anymore, which is sad, actually, because I was a big fan. I got 100% on the vocals, but I hate rhythm action, so that was as far as I got. Then I have to point out a mistake. The one who introduced the coming up video with Paul was not Bill Murray. That was uh, Don Novello, better known to Americans as Father Guido Sarducci. Oh, okay. Ah, oh dear. That does need to be corrected. But what you missed out on is there was a whole thing surrounding that for like the month before. This was right in the middle of the uh, hostage situation in Iran. Okay. And so, you know, SNL had kind of, how are we going to uh, make fun of this? This isn't exactly a subject for parody. Mm. And then, well, Paul got himself arrested. Yeah. So for four weeks running, they ran these updates literally in the style of, of the hostage situation. Yeah. You know, Paul McCartney in a Japanese prison. You know, mea culpa, but that's the thing. You don't realize that sometimes you have to watch the 10 episodes before the episode that you find. But that's the context, and it's also really funny in and of itself. But this is the thing. I mean, sadly, I had to have a cutoff point because Paul McCartney has been in Saturday Night Live so many times now. Yeah, I could have you know, gone into each one of those different appearances, but the book would have been an extra inch thicker. So I, I had to kind of prevent myself doing more than just the slightest mention of him performing with Steve Martin and uh, Martin. Um, uh, oh, my brain, Martin Martin Short. Martin Short. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There's so much great stuff that he's done over the years. You just have to boil it down to sort of. What sounds funny on the page. Yeah, yeah, no. And there is absolutely uh, a book to be written about the Beatles and SNL. Well, they're very, very niche. I'm not telling you to do it. I'm just saying that... No, 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 no. But this is the problem. You know, you can only be so niche. There was a whole uh, world getting there. It's interesting talking about George with his music videos, basically hoping to be a member of Monty Python, really. Uh, That was really sort of his dream. It's funny that before that, when you got the Beatles, you've got Peter Sellers from the Goons sort of trying to become one of the Beatles and hanging around with them and being sort of this slightly older figure who sort of belongs to a different world and wants to be part of that world. And there's like a relay going on between between them all. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is all just one long string. And it's all circular, as you say. It's all coming right back. Yeah. Didn't you say you wanted to speak about George Formby, if you want to go right back to the start? The interesting thing is that comedy, the comedy that would influence George and John, mm. that actually wasn't so different from what we were doing on this side of the pond. Charlie Chaplin, one of mm. the biggest American stars of the early 1900s, well, mm. he, at least in part, learned his act from George Formby Sr. Well, exactly, yes. And Stan Laurel came from the same part of the world as well, the Northwest up in Lancashire. It's a strange divide. You've got Manchester and Liverpool, who are very sort of distinct cities, but they're both basically sat in Lancashire, this whole area in the Northwest, which includes, you know, George Formby, and it's all that kind of voice. You know, it's a very sort of slight divide from that into doing Scouse, you know, and it's just we go from that to that. But they're all, so many comedians all come from that one area, and George Formby was probably the biggest back in the 40s. That collection of people made that accent acceptable in London? Not acceptable, but funny. Funny, right. 
you wouldn't get a news reporter using an accent like that. But it, if somebody were talking like that, then you knew that it was going to be a comedy character and there'd be a joke along and uh, you wouldn't be taken seriously with that voice in a million years. Well, and John was sort of playing off of that in mm. those early shows. You know, even more than George, who was, was the most scouse of them all yeah. in natural speaking voice, I think. Yeah, there's that bit about uh, uh, when... Ted Heath, Edward Heath, who wasn't even prime minister at that time, a politician, a Tory politician uh, called Ted Heath, criticised the Beatles for their accents uh, on the world stage. And John's being interviewed by a news reporter. And he says, I don't understand what Ted was talking about at all. And John showed that he could do a a perfect uh, BBC RP kind of voice, uh, but only to take the piss. And sometimes I wonder whether Paul Frees, when he got the job of doing the voices for the Beatles cartoon, whether he just saw that one clip and thought, oh, that's what John Lennon speaks like. And it all came from that. This thing about Ted, he's saying that he couldn't distinguish uh, you. I can't understand the the Queen's English. I can't understand Ted, he's saying that at all, really. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to vote for Ted. Um, but uh, you're not going to change your act just for uh, the Lord Privy Seal? Oh, no, like, we'll keep, like, the same kind of thing, like, won't we? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Well, and the fact that Ringo cartoon voice became one of the Animaniacs in later years? Yeah, it's it's a unique voice that that came up with there. It's certainly not not Scouse, but it's Wacko or Ringo, depending on uh, how old you are. So I said, okay, well, which one do you want? She goes, why do you do it like Ringo? So I'm like, oh, well, this. And I'm like, this is Fabu. And then I saw this picture of him, and I said, well, he's just a small guy. So I took his voice, and I made it small. So that's how you do it. You take a movie and make it a man. Next thing you know, and that's it, dude. Because you know why? Because I'm like a freaking genius. Have you heard the Genius's Pain record? <laughs> to go off on a completely different direction. Yes, well, I, it's quoted in the book. It's it's one of those, again, where talking about doing the voices and everything, you kind of have to uh, try and communicate as much of the idea of what something sounds like uh, in audio form as you can. I gave it a go to get it across. So, yes, I've certainly I've heard it and transcribed it. And, again, you know, heard it in context as well for the, on the whole album. It's a strange sort of little alleyway down from the area of comedy that started my whole career because most of my books tend to start off in Cambridge, at the Cambridge Footlights. And uh, that's where the performer of, of that track started out as well. Well, and that also brings Eric Idle into the story. Well, again. indeed, yeah, it's sort of from one one to the other. Well, maybe Eric should have been in the National Lampoon rather than uh, Monty Python. Yeah, he never got a look in there, did he, actually? Well, he was in National Lampoon's. Hey, he was in National Lampoon's European Vacation, of course. Oh, okay, well. <laughs> we, a connection there, I... Do we count that or not? Well, no, it's better than being in a carry-on movie, anyway. <laughs> well, again, that's that's a reference that's more or less lost on us. Yeah, exactly. It's a, a whole huge part of British culture. And it was strange how little it intercepted with the Beatles, actually. But carry-on movies, like Pantomime, which does more strongly intercept with uh, the, the Beatles, what does anyone from another country really make of the Beatles doing Pantomime? Because it's part of a similar kind of saucy British comedy tradition that just never, ever had any traction in any other country. So it's difficult. I mean, what do you understand with a pantomime, what a pantomime is? 
Well, it's sort of a children's light comedy where the audience responds back to the stage. Yeah, and they're still very popular to this day, and you get sort of really bad C-list celebrities at your local theatre doing Jack and the Beanstalk or Beauty and the Beast or something, and they kind of crowbar in pop songs to turn it into a musical is another tradition, and the, uh, the men are played by women. It's this bizarre kind of evolution if you like from italian theater from like comedy dell'arte and all that kind of stuff and punch and it's all kind of comes from that tradition which used to be mainstream you know mozart's operas and everything where that kind of cosy fantuti was a pantomime kind of show it's for the groundlings it's for it's like shakespeare's comedies it's for the trolls really to have a laugh at really saucy cheesy jokes except in this country it's a tradition that sadly or wonderfully depending on you know how much of a misanthrope you might be it's still going now after hundreds of years and so that was the sort of tradition that the Beatles fell into when they became famous you know so it was Brian Epstein wanted to put on a show of course if it was Christmas time it had to be a pantomime where are these typically performed theatres all around the region, every different region at Christmas time will have their own pantomime. It'll be Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in Liverpool at the same time as it's Dick Whittington in London and it's Robin Hood in Cornwall or something. Everywhere's got their own really bad shows. And sometimes you get big stars. Ian McKellen did pantomime a few years ago. George had to dress up as a woman for their pantomime because at some point there's going to be a guy in drag and normally a woman in drag as a man as well. So that was sadly George's job in their little bit of pantomime. But Ian McKellen was doing that in Jack and the Beanstalk just a few years ago. Lewison tells us about how one of John's favorite memories as a child was one of the few times Mimi would let him intentionally have fun was to go out and go to the pantomime every year as a kid. Mm. And of course, Uncle George was still alive at that time. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a school treat. It really was when John was a kid. But I remember being taken to a pantomime when I was a kid. And even then thinking, oh my God, this is awful. It's very cheesy, uh, kind of burlesque. Burlesque for kids, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, the lack of television, uh, other distractions make that sort of thing more important in kids' lives back then. When I, I mean, even talking about the early 80s, when I was a kid taken to pantomime, I wanted to play video games even then. So, you know. Yeah. So we get the more current sort of British side of the parodies and the thing and they just run the gamut don't they mm. say sense spitting image you know through the 70s the beatles seemed to have been less well there was less sketch comedy but mm. the beatles seemed to have been less of a topic on british television for poking fun at well and the 80s as well as i say i i grew up in the 80s and the beatles were just almost nowhere i looked the other way in 1987 when they did the 20 years ago today programs, but uh, it was very easy. You know, we, 
we had Madonna and Michael Jackson. And to me, the 80s were owned by America. It, it was back to the future. And it was a very different time. Whereas we didn't sort of get British rock and roll back as far as I was concerned until the 90s. But uh, Spitting Image was always there to take the piss in the 80s as well. But they've never really known what quite what to do with Paul McCartney, I think. Have you seen the, the latest? Hey, Paul McCartney here. Woo-hoo. Doing a Christmas post on Instagram Live like the normal everyday guy I am. Hey, how about a tune? A normal bloke in a massive house. A chirpy smile and a hint of scouts. Paul McCartney's regular Christmas time. Discount veg and £2.99 wine. I haven't seen the latest stuff. I've seen the original stuff, and that just gets weird sometimes. Fingers are nearly ready. Yes, can you set the table? Paul, are you listening to me? Listening to me? Are you listening to me? Still can't think of an idea? Is that what he... Still can't think of an idea? No, no, no. Perhaps I'll clean out my ear. Ho, ho, ho. You can't keep on turning everything I say into lyrics. And don't you know it's wrong to turn everything I say into songs? I sing it. Bong, 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 bong. You don't need any more money. Don't need any money. <sighs> don't need any dash. Please. Don't need any bread now, cause I am orange. Shut up, you stupid scouts! Get! Paul didn't fit. He had a problem to fit. He was a stupid scouse kit. Singing, shut up, shut, shut up, up, shut, shut up. up. Shut up, You never used to be like this. It only seems like yesterday when all my troubles were so far away. That's it. That's it. What? Yesterday. You never used to be like this. You never used right, to be I like that. A boop, boop, boop. A hiss, hiss, hiss. You never used to be a prank. Do your own chips. Poor Linda. Turn her into a, such a stoner. Hey, <laughs> Ringo. I mean, now she was, but that's still no excuse. Well, it was the same gag, really, as uh, Eric in the Ruttles uh, sitting at the piano. Sort of a, a slightly more unpleasant even version than that was but they recently brought it back for the uh, the spitting image reboot and they have the most incredible puppet the latest paul mccartney puppet is the best one they've ever had it looks a bit like something from the the dark crystal you know but they've got no jokes to go with it they've just got a puppet and a voice being paul mccartney but they didn't actually have any jokes to go with it so it's it's a bit of a shame really oh that is a shame uh <laughs> Yeah, and doing Paul, it's far too easy to just uh, drift off into this wacky stoner guy. I love Dana Carvey's impression of Paul, and he's actually doing some really clever things with it, but it far too easily goes off into this, oh, well, it's wibbly-wobbly and, (laughs) you know, bad Doctor Who dialogue. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, we're just (laughs) sitting on a chair, and it's like, okay, Dana. But that's the thing. Once you're in the clothes, it's it's very addictive becoming a Beatle, obviously. Everybody wants to be one. Well, exactly. You've got people like uh, the great Kevin Eldon, who did the foreword for my book. And- what would it be like uh, if uh, the failed right-wing dictator, uh, Adolf Hitler, um, had the voice of the Beatles producer, George Martin? <laughs> and I think it would go something like this. <laughs> so I immediately called uh, an emergency meeting of the German High Command. And I said, well, congratulations, boys. Looks like we got ourselves a smash hit. 
Now, did anyone think uh, of a snappy title for the enforced annexation of a foreign nation? And Heinrich Himmler, who was always ready with a cheeky quip, immediately said, well, mein Führer, how about De Anschluss? And we all fell about laughing and the name stuck. And, uh, hi on me. And, uh, the rest, of course, is history. Do you think it would work if you had Hitler talking about how he'd produced, uh, Sergeant Peppers? We cut up many pieces of tape and throws them in juxtaposition. See, it doesn't work. It just gets, it's just annoying. And, uh, Peter Serafinowicz, and there's so much Beatles material there because... A, Peter Serafinowicz especially is so bloody good at it. And uh, B, it's just so addictive to briefly become a Beatle. Where did the name the Beatle Box come from? Well, funnily enough, Yoko wants to call it the uh, the iPod. iPod? What kind of name is that? Yeah, that that's <laughs> what I said. And, and she said, well, the I symbolizes, you know, the I, the self, you know, the, the, the oneness and everyone being... Uh, at one with the universe and the heart and the eye and the mind's eye, you know, and all that symbolism. I can get into that. And what about the pod part, though? That's what's bothering me. Well, I, I think that was just, she'd had some dream about peas or <laughs> so Ringo's memories, that series of sketches, sexual Christmas time. Yeah. I love that sketch. That TV show was absolutely tragically treated. They, they wanted to do a second series and the BBC wouldn't give them one. And it's, it's just one of the greatest comedy sketch shows of a kind of a really barren period of British comedy for me, the Peter Serafinowicz shows. But his Beatles stuff goes way beyond that as well because he did so much stuff for radio and working with Matt Berry, who plays Toast, Toast in Tinseltown and everything these days, and is in um, What We Do in the Shadows. Matt Berry, I'm not a great fan of his music, but his Beatles pastiches are worthy of being mentioned in the same uh, sentence as Neil Innes, which is not something I would say likely. But they do all those songs where he takes Good Day Sunshine and puts it into a minor key and makes it bad like Moonlight. <laughs> Blackbird becomes Headlice. And just all these kind of minor key McCartney songs. He could release a whole album of them and I'd buy it. And it's so great we can see a significant chunks of this stuff on YouTube these yeah. days. Well, this is the beautiful thing about it, really, that our cultures are submerging in, in, in strange ways thanks to YouTube these days. But it's also good to get it in a book as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, I guess we haven't spoken about Rutland Weekend Television, the origin of the Ruddles, and of course, George and the Pirate Song. And again, that's something which is lost both culturally and from generation to generation because if you think Monty Python is sort of hard to understand sometimes what Eric was doing with Rutland Weekend Television on a kind of a minor channel is all the more abstruse and it's a bit like the Saturday Night Live thing you were telling me about it, unless you've been watching the TV for you know, weeks before the episode that you can now watch on YouTube, then uh, most of the gags are just kind of going either side of your brain, really, because uh, Rutland Weekend Television was never, ever repeated in this country. It's never been uh, brought out. It's one of the most obscure little sort of backwaters of British culture there is, and yet it gave us the Ruttles. And, you know, the Ruttles obviously had its home on American TV, but if it was just that, if it was just the way that the Britain had shown that as a kind of a Rutland Weekend television spin-off, then 
Well, it would be remembered as part of the sort of Monty Python world. But if Neil Innes hadn't brought the Ruttles back to life, it wouldn't be a tenth of, of what it is now. So that was what, two seasons, three seasons in a special, was that right? Uh, I think so, yeah. I think you had the special into it. Something along those lines. Uh, I know they were filming the special at the same time they were putting together the material for the next series, which was when the I Must Be In Love stuff was actually recorded. Yeah, that took quite a lot of um, untangling, to be honest, when I was writing the book. When was this actually done? It, it sort of That was when I was still had Neil to be able to ask questions, uh, email questions across and everything, but we finally got there in the end. As you mentioned, it's not available, or it wasn't available to anybody. Mm. It was never repeated, and for the longest time, it was just drips and drabs. Somebody has finally digitized the whole series, and and I've managed to catch up with the whole series finally. To me, for the Neil Innes songs themselves, it would be pure gold, you know. Eric Idle's always had a bit of a downer on it, it's his solo album. It is his All Things Must Pass, from Monty Python to solo act. And it's it's a weird kind of, to his chagrin, because he's, he's not making any money out of people watching it. And this is Eric Idle we're talking about here. He wants to be making money out of people watching his stuff. But he's always acted slightly embarrassed about this show. And now he's surrounded by people online telling him how much they're loving it. And he's like, maybe I should buy the rights back and bring it out. But he never will. Well, and I don't think the BBC would sell them, to be mm. honest with you. Well, I think that is the problem. The BBC prices these things to a ridiculous degree. It's only because Monty Python is as big as it is that we've finally got sort of remastered Blu-rays out and all that stuff. The film we just saw is an amazing supergroup of the two great comic talents, Saturday Night Live meets Monty Python. Could you just talk about how the two groups I mean, merged and how uh, that came to be? Well, it, it wasn't really intended. I mean, we made it, first of all, apart from the exception of Gary and, you know, Lorne's, you know, being the executive producer, um, we all went over to England and we had about five weeks to shoot this in, didn't we, in a, a mm. little mini-budget. And then we got it back to New York. And I've, I've personally felt there was something missing. I felt we were missing performances because it was all very... It was great and we got it down, but there was no... Nobody was acting in a sort of big way, you know. And so I wrote a scene for Belushi because I felt that we needed some meat... And then we wrote something for Gilda and, and you know, Bill Murray. So, we, we, you know, we just we sort of padded it out. We, made it, we did some more shooting. And then we, we also wrote the scenes that went down to New Orleans, which was sort of added on again. You know right, I mean? yes. Um, so we, we, it was just like saying, oh, what's missing? What, how can we... Because after a bit, you know, doing a parody documentary, you get the idea, you get the gag. And no matter what you do, it's hard to keep our interest again. So that was sort of towards the end, trying to bring in these people, these different people. That's another reason why the Ruddles movie works so well, is that you got the SNL folks and you got the Python folks and you got them together. Exactly. Which is almost George's dream come true. Of If there had been a few more Bonzos members in the film as well, it would have just been all the things he loved all in one place. Well, that and the producers. Yeah, yeah. We, would have, we would have had to have found a way. Maybe they could have turned the Brian character into a producer style. Uh, I can imagine a cut to Bialystok and Bloom, actually, in the middle of the Ruttles. That would work. Well, Cleese doesn't show up in the Ruttles. He's not really um, much of a one for rock and roll, is he, John Cleese? It was Ringo, I think, is the only sort of Beatle he's ever sort of rubbed up against, apart from George, obviously, and the whole Life of Brian thing. And John Cleese and rock and roll go together like a horse and marriage. <laughs> Everyone from the SNL side, the original SNL side, they were just so brilliantly cast. I mean, and Bill Murray the K. <laughs> so many fantastic serendipitous things happened 
to bring all of that stuff together. Just the fact that Ricky Fatar is in it as well. It's it's just the thing you get from the Ruttles, and I've seen the Ruttles so many times now, going to see Neil live. You you turn up to a venue to see a show that he was going to do at like half past eight, and you'd get there too early, and they would put the Ruttles on a big screen. And sometimes when I was researching this book and everything, I saw that film three times in sort of two days. <laughs> still ended up uh, sitting and, and watching the whole thing. That was one of the problems with Eric and his uh, Ruttlemania Broadway show, or uh, attempted to be Broadway show. It hewed too close to the film. I mean, you know, great. You had the Fab Four, and the Fab Four did a tremendous job with the music, by the way. Those guys are not only top-notch Beatle impressionists, they, they've got the Ruttles thing down perfectly. I hate to say it, but now we've lost Neil... People doing that kind of thing is the best thing we're going to get for the Ruttles. I, I don't think John's going to go out on tour as uh, Barry Wom on his own anytime soon. So uh, we are now in the realm of Ruttles tribute acts, and I would definitely go and see a Ruttles tribute act. Why not? It would be a great night out. Well, we actually have one based uh, in Austin here. Oh, great. Well, I've been in bands myself and done lots of sort of beatle type songs. Sadly, coronavirus really screwed with the launch of Fab Fools. We were supposed to launch the book originally at the Fox and Hounds pub in a place just outside Reading, which is just west of London. But that's where John and Paul went and performed as the Nurk Twins because Mike and Bet Robbins were running the pub briefly back at the... Is it the end of the 50s? No, it's the start of the 60s. Because it was going to be the 60th anniversary of the Nurk Twins, John and Paul playing at this little pub. Believe it or not, it's just at the end of the road of the BBC archives <laughs> where I go a lot all through my career. I've been back and forth to the BBC written archives, which are just in a little suburban house in the middle of this edge of a town somewhere, a quiet little leafy lane. They've got all this stuff. And at the other side of that lane is this pub with this fantastic Beatles heritage. The Nurk Twins played here. And my band were going to perform there to launch the book. And then coronavirus hit. Um, we've just never been able to um, get anything back together to do that. But we were going to do a night of rattle songs and then funny Beatles songs, like a live version of You Know My Name and weird stuff like Wild Honey Pie and Peter Serafinowicz's comedy Beatles songs. Philip Pope doing the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, Our Lovely World, So Lovely songs. And I won't say the names because they're too filthy, but I've written my own Beatlesque Rattle songs in <laughs> uh, Don't Do My Dad Again is the clean version of one of them. But uh, it's wonderful to uh, try and do what Neil did and write your own Beatles song. If you're going to do that, you've got to do it with a laugh. You've got to do it as a joke because... Anyone who's going to try and write a Beatles song seriously is going to come up with something not as good. Exactly. They're going to lose. Whereas at least if you're taking the piss, then there's a reason for doing it. Yes. All right. Well, great. You know, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Let's see. The book is still out there. Uh, Amazon everywhere else. Correct. As I say, I've always had a clear eye on America when I was writing the book. Because everything that I do so much is about celebrating British culture and it has a very Brit-centric audience. But the Beatles obviously blow that to smithereens. And I really wanted Beatle fans who've listened to, and this is only one example, there's 
hundreds or thousands of examples in the book. But the whole Morecambe and Wise thing, anyone who's listened thinking, who's that guy going, yeah, get out of that? And all that, what, who the, I really wanted people to enjoy stuff to the full by learning all this stuff. And ideally, you know, I'd, I'd still like to find an actual American publisher because these days you can get anything online. I'm published by a little uh, Welsh company called Candy Jar. I think you've already mentioned them. Uh, and they're fantastic, but it would be great to find an American publisher so it then it's actually out in your bookstores, you know, because I really want Beatle fans all over the world, not just America, all over the world, to be able to get the jokes, which they're probably not getting very much at the moment. Short, fat, hairy heads. <laughs> well, yeah. And this is the first time I've kind of done any American podcast or anything about it. So it's been a real pleasure talking to you guys and getting your angle on these things because it, your angle is this, you know, matters as much as mine. It is available through Audible. And so that may be the easiest way yeah. for folks in this country to get it. And it's also actually probably the cheapest because, yes. well, if you are into Audible, you will have an Audible subscription. So yes. it's, it's one credit, one credit for the month, and it is definitely worth that. Well, the book's got, you know, some lovely pictures in it as well, but you just have to pay the extra to get uh, the people in Wales to uh, to send it in the post. You can get anything these days, but as I say, ideally, I think this book really should go out in America properly. So uh I'll keep an eye out for a publisher over there as well, I think. Well, I mean, Mark Lewison has had that same problem. Yeah. Not with the mainstream edition, but with the author's edition. Oh, I see. Right, yeah. We can dream. Well, it was a pleasure meeting you. No, great pleasure, guys. All right, great. So John and I will be back next week with a new show. Peace and love, peace and love. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. story has never been done in a book you know it's the no which is and it's a no. very very complex story i know yeah. you know no, well, it, it's it's not in a way because um the ruttles came about because it, it was time mm. you know the beatles broke up yeah. and broke millions of hearts yeah and people were sort of depressed and it seemed like a funny uh, way of doing it mm. would be, you know, to ease some of the pain, you know, because real life happens and things can't work at that level and pressure for mm. so long. And um, so when we had that silly clip from Rutland Weekend Television mm. and Saturday Night Live, you know, we're running with the gag of, you know, trying to get the Beatles back together again because Sid Bernstein was offering <laughs> yeah, them $20 yeah. million dollars and a killer whale each mm. if they got together. And Lorne Michaels was... Uh, 
um, running the gag. Mm-hmm. Got George Harrison on, waved three thousand dollars in cash in front of him, saying, "All this could be yours, George." Just get the guys back together, and he's saying, actually going, "Oh, what all of this for me?" And he said, "No, no, no. You have to share it with the others. Maybe you don't have to tell Ringo." That kind of joke. So yeah. the, the timing was right, and it took no imagination at all. After he'd shown the clip with the, the Ruttles, you know, Eric Idle couldn't get the Beatles together, it was a bad phone line, mm-hmm. and, you know, but we got the Ruttles. The mailbag just went bulging. Mm-hmm. And um, so it took him half an hour to go downstairs at NBC and get the budget for all you need is cash. Which is more than you got from BBC yeah. Two as well. So well, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. But I mean, no, it was a labour of love, and everybody involved in it knew what to do. Exactly. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people but they're they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. 